Hilary McKay was born in Boston, Lincolnshire, the eldest of four girls who were all prolific readers. She studied zoology and botany at university before becoming a public protection scientist. Hilary has written many books in her career, including the Whitbread award-winning Casson Family series and the Exile series, of which the first book won the 1992 Guardian Children's Fiction Prize and its sequel, the Nestle Smarties Book Prize, in 1994. Her novel, The Skylark's War, won the 2019 Costa Children's Book Award, and her latest book, The Swallow's Flight, was published in May this year. She is without doubt unparalleled in her ability to write family stories. Nikki Gamble spoke to Hilary and asked her why she's so good at taking the ordinary and making us interested in it and engrossed in the lives of her characters. I think people are naturally gossips, aren't they? Really, we are We are fascinated by other people's lives. I do think that, you know, celebrities get stalked, not for their output, their music or whatever, get stalked to find out what their houses are like inside. And I suppose it's an extension of that, really. It makes people make friends with the characters or have strong feelings about the characters anyway. And I think it makes them more relatable. So that's the way I do it. I don't know another way of doing it. I also think that one of the ways in uh, which we feel part of that family, we'll talk about the different families in a a little while, uh, but you're also incredibly good at writing about food. I mean, their mealtimes are very precise. And I felt that I was sitting down at the table with these families. I never noticed the food. Well, I did notice a huge mistake in that book. I usually dress the characters on the second draft. I usually make them just walk around naked in the first draft, but in the second draft, I put the clothes on. I completely forgot to put clothes on any of them, but I'm glad I gave them something to eat. I can't recall what. Yes, I did, didn't I? Yes. It made the German boys German to mention German family food. Mm. You know, that was one of the techniques Let's talk about the, the stories written in four narrative strands. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to take a little bit of time to talk about each of them, actually. So maybe we should start with the Penroses because they're the family that we are most familiar with from Skylark's War. Tell us a little bit about how they've evolved from the first novel. Yes, that was a mistake. The first novel, I didn't think I'd write a sequel. So I should never have given them six children. It made 26 main characters by the time I counted up. It was ridiculous. So, yeah, I had to um, incorporate them in some form without it being too complicated. And I had to follow through Clary and Rupert, especially, and Peter, because they were the characters that readers have been interested in and asked what happened to them afterwards. So I, so I had to do that. And there was an unresolved character in... Skylark's War, the grandfather, I knew why he was behaving like he was, but I don't think I made it clear enough to readers why he was behaving like he was. So um, I put him in and gave him a part and gave him a proper ending. I really love the grandfather. But I bet you didn't in the first book. No, of course. But those scenes with Kate, his granddaughter, where you see another side of his personality one that yeah. he doesn't really want you to see in some respects. No, he sort of mellowed a bit, not not completely. Um, I think he got a second chance with Kate and Charlie. They weren't bright kids. They weren't his responsibility anymore. So we've got the Penroses. Tell us a little bit about um, Ruby's family, Ruby and Will. 
Well, they came from the old book as well, from Dialogues were as well. Clary's best friend at home was a girl a bit older than her called Violet. And she was a very feisty girl, left school at 12, which happened in those days. There wasn't much education. And it was the story of her life. She was a bit less lucky and educated than Clary was. But I wanted to see how it was for ordinary people. And she happened to live in Plymouth, which I didn't expect either. But Plymouth was really badly hit during the Second World War because of the Devonport dockyards. And so she was a good character to use. And to give a link between her and Clary, I made two little girls, Clary's goddaughters. Yeah, I needed more than the Penroses or else it would have been a bit sugary. Yeah. So this is the sort of, at the beginning, there are these four narrative strands. As we would expect in a novel, they're going to come together. So the third one is really Eric and Hans. There have been so many excellent books written about children during the Second World War. And I wanted to do a different take on it. For one thing, I didn't want the political situation being what it has been the last year or so. I didn't want gung-ho Britain as the good people and the people in Europe as the enemy. We have family in Germany ourselves, you know, so I can see both sides of the argument. And although I desperately didn't want to write anything that would anyway support what happened to the Jewish people and the Nazis, that wasn't the whole story. That wasn't why it began. It began with the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, I don't think the First World War ever really was resolved in everybody's minds. Maybe the British thought they signed it and finished it and the Americans, but the French and the Germans didn't. And I think that's what precipitated the rise of Hitler and the Nazi Party, because it offered a way out of what had been lost. And so I wanted both points of view, essentially. I wanted a different story. I want you to think about children like, you know that lovely book, Eric? Emma and the Detectives. Yes, Eric Kastner. Eric Kastner. It's only a few years before. It's between the wars as well, but I think it's maybe five to eight years before. I wanted to think what would happen to those boys. They weren't Nazis. What would happen to them when the war came around? So that's how I used Eric and Hans. I did use that book a lot. I used the same speech patterns to make the boys sound as if they were speaking a different language. Um, it was quite hard to do that. To make it sound German, yes, but be accessible to British yeah. children. Really interesting. Eric Kastner, along with Astrid Lindgren mm-hmm. and Tova Jensen, uh, were very instrumental in setting up the International Board on Books for Young People at the end of the Second World War mm-hmm. as a way of fostering international communication and understanding through children's books and reading. Eric Kastner, I think, suffered quite a lot because his books were banned during the Second World War by the Nazi Party. It wasn't the Nazi youth they wanted to see. So that's sort of things based on what you've just said there. The friendship between Hans and Eric, it's such a delight. I mean, it starts with ten years Eric old. having these swallows that mm-hmm. he feeds with dead fly. I mean, that beginning, you don't, first few sentences, you've no idea what's going on, but Gradually, as that page, you move down that page, you understand that he's gathering these flies to feed some swallows in a a nest outside his room. And all the other children are helping him for trades, as it happens, (laughs) to collect dead flies to support 
these swallows. And of course, that idea of flight then takes off through the novel because that becomes very important. It does. Yes, he likes the birds. I had a similar experience when I was about nine or ten. I had a fallen nest of birds. I'd done it two or three years because we always had a house martin's nest and it often fell down. And I used to try and rescue them. They always died. And then I got the idea that I should feed them on flies. It was absolute killer. Just going around the neighbours at four in the morning with a teaspoon trying to get the green fly off their roses. But they did fledge and fly. It was a great moment for me as a child. So I I thought that seemed real. And and like you say, it brought it straight into flight Mm. and made the children immediately nice. You know, these were caring boys and they were funny and Mm. they were great friends. Mm. They get up to some pranks early on in the book. They desperately want to go to Berlin Zoo, but don't have the money to do that. So they come up with these plans as to how they can get entry into the zoo, which is just very delightful. Well, I think it was their escape. Berlin Zoo was their escape. And their fantasy about the cakes and sweets that they would sell outside was because they didn't have them. You know, they were poor boys, especially Eric with his single mother cleaning for a living. So, yes, they had this dream. And they were intelligent boys. The last thing they wanted to do was join the Hitler Youth, but they had to join the Hitler Youth. There was no choice about that. A teacher who cares about them says, you better get yourself signed up and visible. Your dad will want to keep that job at the post office. That's exactly what happened. It wasn't just, you're a bad boy if you join it and you're a good boy if you don't. They had to think about their families all the time. It's a very scary situation. And I think the other thing that comes across is how slowly, gradually, those changes take place. A few flags turns into a lot of flags, perhaps turning the other way and then into, you know, fear and then terror. And it's so incremental, um, the way that it's built up in the story and in life. By contrast, I suppose if there is a cruel character in the story, the one who comes across as cruelest in many ways is Will Ruby's Yes, he suffered terribly from jealousy and his little sister was born with birthmarks, as my little sister was actually, and um, the attention she got and the fact that her mother tried to make up to her for it. It took him a long, long time to get over himself, I think. He had to go through some pretty bad experiences before he realised the good things in his life, which he does in the end. I don't think he was entirely bad. He just had a chip on his shoulder, lots of kids do. Something else that struck me, maybe it's something that happens as you get older and your assessment of time, your concept and your understanding of time changes. And it struck me just how short that intervening period was between one world war and the other. And that in the memories of these people, they would not have, that would still have been so present when going into a second war. It's like us looking back on the turn of the millennium. We can remember the parties, you know. It wasn't that long. In fact, it's less than that. My grandfather fought all through the First World War. And then he had two boys. And to see them go off, one in the army, one in the navy, was absolutely horrible. And it happened over and over again in this country, in Europe, everywhere, you know. Yeah. And then it also struck me by by the same kind of measurement, if you like. I was born in 1960. So the the gap between the end of the Second World War and when I was born 
is similar to the gap between the war years. And so a lot of the things that I learned about the Second World War were from living relatives. And I wonder when you were writing this, how much of it was memory that was passed on from family and how much you had to research? I did a lot of research, I have to say. I didn't have, no, I didn't have much memory passed on from family. My mother was evacuated as a little girl, but there was no story there. She was extremely happy. My father had a Polish Jewish friend who came over with the kinder transport. And again, he came over with his sister and his mum and settled down, lived happily ever after. There was no tragedy involved at all. So I didn't have family memories. I did a lot of reading and a lot of research on both sides. Um, I spent a lot of time in the British Library. And I spent a lot of time with the British Library after lockdown because apparently they kept librarians locked up there doing research for people, you know. So I did a lot of that. I tried to get as many details right as I could. I didn't fudge dates when a plane came down on at Plymouth. You know, I had to have the first time that happened. So I found the maps in the right date. And, and the newspapers that Ruby found to take the cuttings from, they were all real. I have copies of them all here. Mm. I went to the British Library and I said, what would you find in the second week of November in 1938 in a newsagent shop on the west coast of England? And we found all these papers. But that sort of thing made it feel real to me. And probably makes it real to the reader. I mean, it's that depth that you get, even though you might not realise that's what you're having as you're reading. It's, it's kind of absorbed into your subconscious as you're reading, I think. I hope so. I hope it does feel real. It gives give you a nice solid background to write against once you've got all that. Yeah. What kind of discoveries did you make while you were doing that research? I guess a lot of things you would have known already because it's very much part of our collective understanding. But what, what did you discover that either surprised you or made you think differently? I discovered more about the German side. I discovered that Germany weren't allowed an air force, for instance, after the First World War, and that they had to pay a huge amount in land. I think America said, make the Treaty of Versailles a fair treaty, but France had suffered so much with the war being fought on its land Mm -hmm. that it wanted payment and revenge, and that's what happened. And the land was the land that held the mines, which was the fuel and held the seaboard as well. So it really affected them in in practical ways, fuel and transport and power. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realise that I hadn't put it all together. And I suddenly saw what had built up the resentment, you know. Sometimes our understanding of these things is quite disaggregated and we know little bits, but uh, as you say, it's how it all fits together. (laughs) I found a book. It was privately printed in Germany. It was by a German Luftwaffe pilot, and it was called A Spitfire on My Tail. But you suddenly saw how it was like for them, how, you know, they didn't have fuel on this side and how they longed for a little bit of Britain where they could get some fuel to fly back home again because they were literally wave hopping back out of the high winds to get back. It was interesting to see a different point of view. Um, I think that's what writing is and what reading is for. It's to see a different point of view. But I don't know how much of that comes across. There are too many characters in it, that's for sure. Well, I was glad that you put Family Tree in there 
Yes, I wrote it as one book and then I split it up and wrote it as four books and then I put it all in chronological order and put it back together again and it was quite complicated. Tell us about the fourth strand, Dog. Where did Dog come into the story? The dog is called Pax. He's given, partway through the story, he's given the name Pax. Yes, he was. And then I realised that a book came out, didn't it, a year or two ago about a dog called Pax, but too late, I'd already started writing this. I needed the dog to make the girls go to the plane as it came down in Devon. And um, I needed a dog that would run, and so they had to follow him. Not contact the adults, because if the dog hadn't been there, they'd have shouted into the house quick as the plane came down. But I wanted them to be alone with the plane, so they had to rush off after something that, that was important to them, and that was the dog. So that's why Pax was there. Although he was a nice character as well. I got very fond of him. He was a nice character, and you do actually explicitly make the connection between Pax and the grandfather. They do have similarities. <laughs> They're both unprepossessing, growly, shabby, old. They're not cute. They are similar, yes. And it also made Kate grow up because she had she was very much a cosseted younger child, but she was given the responsibility for this dog. She couldn't really get out of it because everybody else was off doing their own things. And it made her a bit more mature, which she had to do as well. It's all devices and twists and plotting. It's not spontaneous. Like every single strand has its own catchphrases to remind the reader of where they are. So if they read another word for peace, Paxes, you know, that comes up over and over again in one strand. Or the boys say things like, don't fall out of the window. As a running joke, it goes through it. Sherbert Dab is behind the clock. Yeah. All these things are meant to secretly tell the reader where they are and which characters they're with at the time. That's very clever. One of the things that I was going to ask is that as the story unfolds, we find that people end up in parts of the world where they don't come from. Was that something that you saw as having contemporary relevance as you were writing? No, it did occur to me. The year I was writing, the years I was writing, it took a couple of years. The second year was the pandemic year. The year before was the Brexit year. I cannot tell you how much I dislike not being a European citizen or to see red, white and blue flags propped up behind our prime minister. I cannot tell you how glad I am to have races mingling in this country instead of boring white people with insular ideas. I think the more the better. For goodness sake, we've always had them. I cannot bear it when people are horrible about people desperate enough to put their kids in a blow-up boat and come here. These are the bravest of the brave that are coming here. And we are, some parts of us are not nice about it. And I can't stand it. So I did put that in on purpose, yeah. Definitely. Uh, something else in your afterword that I read that really struck a chord with me. Um, you're talking about the Holocaust. I mean, this isn't a Holocaust book. Clearly, there are, Kristallnacht is an event that happens in the book. Um, and of course, that's part of the context for the story but it's not about that as it were no. you write something very important whereas it's you, you say it's not my story to tell but it's not my story to ignore I wonder if you could say a bit more about that well it's not my story to tell I know very few Jewish people Fraulein Trisk was a friend of my family actually 
Let me just go and light her fires on Saturday morning, just like Eric's mum did in the book. So that was a link. Liz Kessler's done a wonderful book about the Holocaust, but then she has a family link to it. I do wonder how much right I have to write any I wasn't in the Second World War. I don't think it hurts to tell the story, but it's no good pretending it affected me because it didn't. But you can't ignore it either. I just can't bear to see us going backwards and backwards Mm. to such a time. But we are going backwards in this country. I feel it very strongly. But I think we do have young people who might take us forward again. That's that's my hope. Me too. I've got great hope for the young people of this country mm-hmm. and of the world. You know, Greta Thunberg, she's a wonderful person. Coming back to the characters in your stories, I dare say that all characters, as many writers have told me all the, over the years, all characters have an element of their writer in them. Kate is an observer, a Mm -hmm. recorder of the things that are going on around her and a writer. Does she have something of you in her? Yeah, a little bit. I was an observant child. I know that now because I can remember things quite clearly. I lived more like Ruby did, actually. Her standard of living with her clever mum and her kind dad were more like mine. Yeah, I suppose there's little bits, but it's mostly a patchwork process with me. I take a little bit of lots of things, quite unconsciously. But when I needed the name for an old German lady, I remembered Fräulein Trisk used to give us the offcuts from her draper's shop to make dresses for my sister and I. So we came out of our little house by the gasworks in apricot silk from Mrs Trisk. And she knits Eric a pair of mittens, green mittens. (laughs) So... With the writing of The Swallow's Flight, what part of the process did you most enjoy? Is there one narrative strand that captured you more than the others? No, I don't think so, actually. As I was with one set of people, I grew quite fond of them. I did grow fond of Eric and Hans, but then I liked being with the Skylarks War people. They were familiar to me as well, and that includes Ruby. Can I ask um, whether there's any future life for these characters could you ever see yourself taking them into the cold war cold war that's a thought no not well yes i was going to try and write a sequel but i wasn't going to use the cold war i suppose i could i was going to follow b's little daughter barley she comes in in the last chapter she's three so she would be the obvious child character to go to and I was going to cut down on the number of characters hugely. Barley didn't have a father. So that, that narrows it down a bit. She was an only child. But I haven't done it yet. I'm just making notes for it. Are you? <laughs> well, Hilary, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel very honoured that you've come onto the Reading Corner today to talk to me Thank about you. Yes, me. Thank you very much indeed. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.